I don't know if you've noticed something extraordinary about the society in which we live in our, in, in our culture today is that nobody is to blame for anything. Have you noticed that? Uh, nobody says, sorry, it was my fault, I shouldn't have done that. Uh, it's, al it's almost rare to hear that spoken by anybody in any institution at any point. I mean, we're very quick, people, to blame other people, but no one's actually responsible. It's an extraordinary thing. Um, this is a little cartoon I came across about a family. I think that's where it starts, in the home. And those of you who got children know that no child ever owns up to doing anything. And when something happens in the home, it's never anybody else's fault. It's never their fault. In fact, yesterday, uh, we were out in the garden, Lois and I, late in the, in the afternoon, and um, Lois pointed out a, a um, foxglove that had been massacred. And she said, what on earth has happened to this? And I said, the lawnmower did it. <laughs> and bearing in mind what we're talking about today, I said, well, actually, I was responsible for pushing the lawnmower, so I suppose I did it. But we're very slow to, um, to, ca to catch up on that. Um, I love the story, some of you all know it, about a boy in America who lived out on a farm. They were quite poor, so there was a river at the bottom of their garden, and their toilet was basically a shack attached to a jetty over the river in, in, on, at the end of their garden. And uh, one day, the, um, this toilet shack was found floating down the river for quite a considerable distance. And the father uh, brought it back, and he came to his son. He said, son, did you cut loose the, the, the toilet? And the son said, uh, he said, um, I can't tell a lie, Pa, I can't tell a lie. I did cut the toilet loose. So his father took off his belt and whipped the boy to near his death. And the boy came to his father and said, I don't understand it. I don't understand why you've done that to me. Because you brought me up on the story of George Washington. It's a well-known story. That George Washington was given a hatchet by his father. And his father had just grown a lovely new cherry tree. And George Washington went out and cut down the cherry tree. And he said to his, this little boy, said to his father, you've told me that story over and over again. And that George Washington's father said, because you did not lie, because when he said, uh, did you cut down the cherry tree, this was the quote, George Washington said, I can't tell a lie, Pa, I can't tell a lie, I did cut it down with my hatchet. Then George Washington's father said, you will become a great man, my son, because you have learned to speak the truth, and gave him a great hug. So the boy said, well, why didn't you do that to me? And his father said, the difference between George Washington and you is that George Washington was not in the tree when his son cut it down. <laughs> Um, the word, and there's a picture here, uh, uh, Dallas Willard made this statement, confession is one of the most powerful of the disciplines in our spiritual lives. And as you know, that over this period of time, we are looking at living life well. How are we going to live life the best we possibly can? And during this last year, we've gone through these dis dis disciplines that help us to live well. So the purpose of them is not, because the word discipline sounds a bit harsh. You think, well, I don't like that. But these particular patterns of life will make us live our lives well. And here's a surprising thing, is that confession will help us to live our lives better. And so Willard says confession is one of the most powerful disciplines of the Christian life. It is good for the soul, he said, but bad for the reputation. And as we learn this whole principle of confession, it will actually liberate us and not bow us down. The word for confession in the Bible, or the word confess, is uh, the Greek word homologio, which two words, if you understand a bit of Greek, homo, which means the same, logio, logos, the word, means spoken word. So it means 
spoken the same or to say the same. If you say the same thing, that is a confession. In other words, it's what's inside comes out. What is hidden becomes revealed. What is secret becomes spoken. Uh, when we started the service today, what was on the laptop back there, if you know anything about projection, when you, when you project onto the screen, you get the choice on your, on your screen. Of, it says dual screen or mirroring. And you click on that and it flicks it from the laptop there to here. That's a form of confession. What was secret on the laptop has become exposed on the screen. As in, here's another illustration of, uh, of uh, confession. It's the wedding that took place last Saturday at Windsor Castle. That's uh, uh, Gabriella Windsor and Thomas Kingston. And they got married at Windsor Castle last week. And uh, here's two of the guests who were there, looking absolutely <laughs> delightful. Who'd like to see that? And, um, but a wedding, a marriage service, is a confession. Something that was inside, a love, a commitment, is then exposed outwardly and said outwardly in front of other people. That's what confession is. So it's saying the same thing. It's already known inside, but it becomes known outwardly. It is already secret, but it becomes exposed uh, to other people. And so that's why we're going to look at this word confession. And it's a powerful and a liberating thing when something inside becomes out, because when it comes out, it can be sorted out and dealt with. And it is a key to living life to the full. There's, of course, in the New Testament, another use of the word confession. And we get that in, in Romans chapter 10, where, where uh, Paul says this remarkable thing. He says that if you're going to be saved, that is, you're going to come into a full relationship with God, you need to do two things. One is you need to believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. And secondly, you need to confess with your lips that he is Lord. So the first part is vitally important, that you believe in your heart something. It's internal, that you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Why? Because it demonstrates that's who he was. Why? Because it demonstrates that the cross was worthwhile. Why? Because it makes it absolutely clear that the resurrection is also for us, which is good news. So to be a Christian, you need to believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. But that's not enough, because the devil believes as well, so we're told, and he trembles. But he's not a Christian, as far as we know. So to believe in your heart is one thing, but when you confess it with your lips and you speak it out, Jesus is Lord, that's a completely another thing. It confirms what is already in the heart. Baptism, of course, is the, most, uh, the greatest form of that. That when a person becomes a Christian, they believe on, their, on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then they confess it in baptism. And that brings their full salvation. So confession is an incredibly important part of our Christian lives in different levels. And last week, um, Judy uh, reminded us of the passage in 1 John, that when we, uh, if we want to walk in the light, which basically means walking with a clean conscience, it means walking openly before God, it means walking, saying everything is now out. There's nothing that is hidden. If we want to walk in the light, as it were, uh, we're told that confession is a part of that. 1 John 1.9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. In fact, let's back up. In 1 John chapter 2, uh, we read these words. Little children, I write this to you, that you sin not. In other words, God's purpose for our lives is that we don't do anything wrong that we live lives without doing anything wrong. But fortunately, the passage goes on to say this. 
Little children, I write this to you that you sin not. But if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. In other words, God's desire is that we never sin. But actually, of course, we will, because there's still damage in our own hearts and our souls. And he says, but there's a way out of that. But if you walk around your world's life saying, I haven't got any sin, there's nothing wrong with me, I didn't do anything wrong, what John is saying is you've deceived yourself. There's no truth in you, and you're walking in the darkness. But if you're willing to admit your sin, he says, um, in this passage in 1 John, if we admit our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So confession at that point, to say, yes, God, I have done something wrong, brings the possibility of forgiveness and complete cleansing so that we can openly walk before God knowing we have a clean conscience. That's what's so wonderful thing. Confession, if there was no forgiveness, would be a terrible thing. I would just expose all my wickedness and horribleness and I would still be there. But to confess it before God is a wonderful thing because he cleanses it away. I don't know if any of you listened to the, uh, I can't imagine you did, the Eurovision Song Contest last week, which we came last again. And um, I didn't actually, but I, I gather that in the interval, Madonna sang. And uh, it wasn't a very brilliant performance, apparently. But actually, in her, when she sang, she actually sang out of tune some of the song. But then she put onto her YouTube channel a recording of what happened at the Eurovision Song Contest, and it was perfectly in tune. It was on the radio the other day. They played the two bits. Now, the reason she was out of tune may have had a number of reasons, actually, so not blaming her for that. But, but somebody changed it. And so it, it were, the music was cleansed. I wish we could have one of those things here to do that. Fantastic. But um, <laughs> in order for that to happen, well, then when I put on this microphone when I'm speaking, I always say to the guy on the desk, don't turn the sound up until I'm speaking. I don't, don't record my singing, please. But um, anyway, what was that? Madonna, yes. And, uh, but at some point in that operation, somebody had to admit that she sang out of tune. Now, whether it was her and she heard it and said, my goodness me, get that changed, it doesn't really matter. Somebody had confessed the fact that was out of tune. And because they confessed it, then they were able to deal with it. And because we confess, God is able to deal with it, and he cleanses us and makes us as if he had never sinned. Why? Because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Wow, that's fantastically good news. And that means it's worthwhile in this life, being able to say, yes, I did it. It was my fault. I own up to that. I am sorry for what I have done. Not only does it give you the capacity to forgive me, but it knows, I know that God forgives me for what I have done. Now we turn to this passage in James, which was the passage read for us in the sign there to me today. This is not an easy passage, I have to say. If you read it in the, in the NIV version of the Bible, it seems to be fairly straightforward. Um, and, but it's not an easy passage to follow. Uh, that's why I chose it from this version. I'll tell you why. Because there's, a, there's some words in here that are interchangeable. And one of the words is the word for sickness, or uh, uh, healing rather, and the word for salvation. Uh, so they're interchangeable. And uh, Eugene Peterson, who was a theologian, and this, this, whether you call it a translation or not, I don't know, but it's, he, he did it from the original Greek. So I've, I'm going to blame him because he did a lot of thinking about this. And I love the way he's translated this particular passage. If you make this your common practice, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can live together whole and healed. 
And he's used the full weight of the word that's used there, the sozo word, which is healing and wholeness that we get from confession. We need to understand that in, in this um, epistle, James's great concern when he wrote this epistle was in the early Christian church, there were many people who were living half-hearted and half-baked Christian lives. They were purporting to be Christians, but actually they were still living lives that didn't demonstrate that Christian faith. And he was concerned about that duplicity that was going on. And you, you understand that because the last verse of his, his epistle is a summary and usually the last verse is the most important thing somebody wants to say. And he says this, Whoever turns... Well, my brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. So he was concerned for this. And so he's writing within that context that some people were living in that way. Uh, and James relates this sinful behavior with sickness. And he relates healing with confession. So somehow he's saying that there is a relationship between living a sinful, a selfish, wrong life with sickness. And uh, it's very interesting a question to ask, what, well, how does the rest of the New Testament deal with this particular question? Is there a direct relationship between sinning and sickness? Certainly if there were, most of us would be sick. Let's face that. Let's be true about that. And it's, it's obvious, too, that there are many good people who get sick and many bad people who feel very healthy. So what is the New Testament uh, truth about this? Is, is there a relationship between sickness and healing? And uh, sin, rather. And the answer to the question is yes and no. When Jesus was asked the question when he healed the blind man, the disciples said to him, and this is John chapter 9, the disciples said to him, who sinned, this man or his parents? Because the assumption in the Jewish community was that there was a relationship between sinning against God and becoming sick. And Jesus' answer was interesting. He said, neither. It was neither his parents or him. This sickness is here so that the power of God can be demonstrated. There's a purpose in this sickness, and now it's come to fruition because you're going to see the power of God at work. It wasn't to do with that man or that man's uh, parents. It was completely removed from that. And yet on another occasion, Jesus is at the, um, uh, uh, the pool of Siloam, and you remember a man is healed from his sickness, and Jesus meets him a bit later on, and he says to him, Oh, I see you're well. That's, that's good to see you well. But don't sin again, or you might get something worse. So in some ways, there was a connection there. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul's talking about the communion service, he says that because some of you take the bread and the wine unworthily, without any sense of repentance, many of you have fallen sick and some have died. So Paul saw that there was a possible connection between the two things. But I think what is clear from the New Testament pattern is that the, the sickness is not a punishment for sin, but it might be a consequence of it. And so there may be a relationship in some cases between those two things. Because sickness is a part of this fallen, broken world in which we live, this sinful world in which we live. It's just a part and parcel of it. And it's a response to the rebelliousness of human nature. But the truth is, if you're in, in medicine, you will understand this even more than those of us aren't uh, do, is that, th that we are very complex, that nobody really understands sickness. So nobody really understands health because, we don't, because we're made up of body, soul, 
and spirit, we're not quite sure exactly how they're interrelated, but they surely are. Because we know that sometimes the sickness we have is not caused by a primary cause to a sickness in our body, but something that's going on emotionally in us. We all know that it's possible to be full of anger and resentment and bitterness, and that can cause your body to have some response. We know that if we're stressed, we can get an ulcer. We know that if we think badly and, and our attitudes are wrong, that it can be reflected in the way that our body responds. So sickness is not an easy thing. So this is why I think it's to do with wholeness uh, at, at the healing process. Um, and that's why I think he's reminding us that it's a healthy thing, because we don't know the source of it. It's a healthy thing to actually examine ourselves. I remember many years ago being at a conference, and um, in the interval between sessions, I was sitting on the stairs at this conference center, and a man came up to me and he said, you won't know me, but I came to one of your seminars several hundred years ago in um, Spring Harvest uh, when you were speaking on relationships. And in that talk, you said that sometimes when people are out of, when they're bitter or angry with somebody else, it's possible that uh, they may end up with some rheumatic disease in their bodies because their body is reflecting the tautness and the tightness that's going on. I didn't quite remember saying it exactly how I said it, but anyway, I was wanting to think, oh, golly, did I say the right thing there? Anyway, he said, I was a young man, and I remember my grandmother had very severe arthritis. So he said, next time I visited her, I went to see her, and I said, do you know, I've just heard a talk where the chap said that if you've got severe arthritis, you're probably bitter and twisted about something. <laughs> and my grandmother said, you're quite right, I am. She said, I have spent most of my life uh, being angry about a particular thing that happened to her when she was younger. And she said, I'm still angry today. And uh, the boy said, well, I think, Grandma, the best thing to do is, now you've told me about it, we need to confess it to God and ask for forgiveness. And she wept, he said. And she told God about this thing. And she got herself right with God. He said, the next time I saw her was only a few weeks before she died. And uh, she, I went to visit her because I knew she was dying. And she said to me, do you remember just a few years ago you came and we prayed together about my anger? She said, I want you to know that my arthritis never got any better at all. But that these last three years have been the best years of my life because I was free. Was she healed? I think so. Because she learned to confess the sin that was in her heart. Uh, last year, and beginning of January of last year, I, I discovered I contracted... Um, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, very painful at the time. I'm much better at the moment, but it's very painful. And um, it caused me to remember that and think, is there anything in my life that could possibly have resulted in this in my body? And actually, just the, the, the November before, I'd been in some meetings with some people. None of you won't know any of them. And with a particular guy in the meeting, I was incredibly angry with his behavior, the way he... I can't tell you about it, but... And I, it just caused me to be angry. And I came home and I was angry. And I was angry for some time about it. And when I began to examine myself, that immediately came to mind. And I realized that actually I was hanging on to that. And I talked to Lois about it and one or two other people, and I prayed about it, and I forgave this guy. Uh, I don't know whether he was right or wrong in what he did. It didn't really matter, but my reaction was not healthy. And so I, I asked for forgiveness for that. And I felt good. And now I've seen the guy several times since, and I'm fine with him. It didn't solve the problem with my rheumatoid arthritis. I don't think, although I'd be much better, I don't think it solved it. But it solved a problem in my heart. 
And I was glad I was able to tell somebody else, not just quietly in my heart, say, oh, I, do, I think I forgive him. I needed to go and say to somebody, I need to forgive this chap for what I think he may have done. So he, that's why I think James is writing. That firstly, the thing to do when you're sick is to call for the elders of the church, the older, the more people in leadership in the church. I think the reason is because they have the capacity, not just to pray for you, but maybe to discern what's going on to look wider than the sickness and say, are there other things happening in your life that this sickness is, a, is a, an affraction of? Can we help you in this? In all the time Lois and I were in, involved in the leadership of Riverside, almost nobody ever did this. It's quite extraordinary. If you're sick, you know, the, if the Bible says this, call for the elders, first thing you should do is to call people to come and pray for you. I mean, that's what he says here. And there's a good chance he says you're going to get healed, especially if they anoint you with oil. Wow, but give it a go, wouldn't you? You would if it says that here in the scriptures. And then secondly, he goes on and he says, confess your sins one to another. With other people, openly confess your sin. Of course, if, you, if you've hurt somebody, done something to somebody that you shouldn't have done, you want to confess to them because obviously they're the people that you need to ask for forgiveness. But there, may, there needs to be within the, the church a, a group of people that you feel comfortable with that you can confess to. Now, there's not every environment you can do that. I mean, if you're, a, if you're a politician today, you wouldn't be doing this, or you'd be very careful to whom you say this stuff. And in the church, maybe you'd want to do the same. If there was a journalist sitting in the room, you might not want to say it. But so you need people around you who can help you. And here's, a, I just put a list of things that, that I've got as a, somewhere else, I've picked this up, for, about, about, about friendship. What you need is a friend, is somebody who's for you. That means they're on your side. They're with you. They, they understand what's going on. They're not against you. They don't see your confession as an opportunity to somehow put you down. Secondly, a friend is somebody for whom you have a reciprocal arrangement. So that you're able to say to that person, I want to share about my life, and they're able to share back with you. So you both know you're sinners sharing lives together. It's intimate because you're going to say some things that may be very personal, and you may be very embarrassed to share them about your thoughts. It's enduring. These are fr friendships are things that go on for a long time. I've, I've known you through many years, and I've seen the ups and downs of your life. It's non-judgmental. The last thing you want when you confess a sin to somebody else is a great sucking of teeth, isn't it? Oh, my word, I'd never have thought that of you. Boy, you could blow me over with a feather. You're the last person I would think would think things like that. That's not the friend that you want. It's probably the person who says, I thought, you'd like, I thought you were like that. And then <laughs> someone who is utterly discreet, utterly confidential. It never, ever goes beyond that point. That's a very rare person, by the way. Because even, you know, we think, I'll oh, just share it with a few people for prayer. It goes nowhere. That's what a friend, that's the sort of people that we want, that we can do. I don't know if any of you are aware of the Wesleyan revival back in the 18th century when large numbers of people, vast numbers of people over 40 years came to faith. And that was a revival of repentance because when Wesley preached, a lot of the people, particularly the poor people of his day, repented of their sins openly. Quite unlike today, I have to say. Very rarely do you hear a testimony today of somebody who's become a Christian who says, oh, my life's been changed because I realize what a sinner I am, how Jesus has forgiven me. Usually it's, uh, I realize how nice the church is or, you know, or something. But, but, but this was a real revival of, of, of repentance. And when they were put in small groups, which is what happened in the Wesleyan, in the early days of the Methodist movement, 
They were all put in small groups. They had clear guidelines as to what to do in those groups. Here are some of the questions. What known sins have you committed since the last time we met? What temptations have you met with? What have you thought, said, or done which you doubt whether it was a sin or not? Have you nothing you desire to keep secret? Am I honest in all my acts or words, or do I exaggerate? Am I a slave to dress, friends, work, and habits? Did I give time to speak to God every day? I mean, those are sharp questions, because these people, they wanted to walk in the light. They wanted to live holy lives, and they, they weren't threatened by this, so they learned, mind you, not everybody joined the groups, I have to say. They wanted to, you had to really want to go on if you joined one of their groups. So, Eugene Peterson translates it, make this your common practice. Confess your sins to each other. Those each other are going to be special people. And pray for each other so that you can live together whole and heal. Here's some of the repercussions of doing this. If you, if you learn to confess, uh, restitution comes. Because, you know, if you say, if I say to Alice, look, I've been really unkind to somebody, she's going to suggest to me that I go and talk to them and say I'm sorry. There's going to be some restitution takes place. There's a restoring of relationship. There's going to be release because as soon as I confess it out, as soon as it becomes from inward to outward, I feel free at last. I'm not carrying this burden of guilt around every single day. It's out. It's out there. The third thing is there's a resolve, a resolve to be different. Let me tell you, if I know that next time our small group meets, I'm going to have to confess all my sins, I'm going to be careful I don't sin too much. It's true. You're just a bit more careful how you live. You're sharper in your attitudes and your behavior. Uh, fourthly, relationship. If I'm going to be in a group or with other, some other person that I'm willing to share some quite deep things with, we're going to get a close relationship. I've been with a group of guys that I meet with three times a year for the last 35 years. We have a deep relationship because we share very deeply about things. And then lastly, there's going to be a fresh righteousness because there's a desire for holiness. I know I'm going to be right with God every single day because when I'm not, I have a place to confess that. And righteousness, he says, is a very exciting thing because it's the righteous prayer, the prayer of a righteous person that has huge power in its effect. Elijah's prayer stopped the rain, for goodness sakes. And then he prayed and it rained. It's amazing. If you want to have powerful prayer, it'll be the man or woman. Not the man or woman who is perfect, but the man or woman who discovers righteousness, which is forgiveness in their heart. And very often that will come from confession. So there's a lot in this, and you can see why this helps us to live our lives to the full. It's not easy to do, but it should be part and parcel um, of our lives. Make this your common practice. And just a little caveat here, just to be careful. I don't want you to come to me, or to any, I don't want anybody to just bob to me and say, I want to tell you something I've just done. We don't need to dump stuff on everybody. We have to find the right people at the right time. Uh, there are two guys in this church, none of them are here this morning, so I can say this, who I know that when they are traveling away, which they do for their jobs, they can contact each other all the time because they know the temptations that can happen to guys who are on the road. And they've done that as a protection and with a commitment that if something goes wrong, they will tell the other person. In other words, they watch a video they shouldn't watch, or they meet somebody who they're attracted to. They have got that relationship where they'll say, this has happened to me, because they know. 
that if they open it out, they'll be free. And that's a fantastic thing. So they've chosen that. They've found a place of being open and how to confess. So we have to know how to handle all that I've said this morning. But it is the beginning of a discussion for us as to whether how we're going to do this. But it will sharpen us up to next time somebody says, who's responsible? It may be you'll be able to say it was me. I remember being in a car with somebody not very long ago and somebody blew their horn at them. And the man driving the car said, oh, that was entirely my fault. And I went, what? It was, actually. But I thought, wow, this is a man who's learned to say this is my fault because he knows there's a forgiveness and there's cleansing and we can start again because there's none of us without sin and we all have that potential for it.